Good morning. I couldn't help but think when Doug mentioned the award for costume that looks most like him that I think Robbie could actually uh, compete if we. Um, Galatians 3 is where we'll be this morning. I also wanted to thank the, everyone who worked on the kitchen. Yeah, I was thinking when, when they christen a new ship, it's tradition to break a wine bottle on the, the front of the ship, with the bow, the stern. Um, so this morning I took a bottle of olive oil and just threw it. I didn't do that, but um, kitchen looks great. If you have not seen it, definitely go down after church and uh, take a look. It looks really good. And so as others have said, just want to sincerely thank everybody who worked on that. Um, Galatians 3 this morning. We will be in uh, verses 6 through 9. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day and for the blessings we have. Lord, we continue to pray for our nation. These are our divided times. And Lord, regardless of what's going on in the world and in society, Lord, may we just continue to walk with you, to prioritize you above all things, to shine your light to others. Lord, may we have peace that surpasses understanding. Lord, amid all of the strife and disdain, may we be people known by love, people who know you and share you. Lord, we want to pray for this family of Steve Troel, who passed away tragically in Iraq this week, family that was known to the halls. Lord, we lift them up. We want to pray for his wife and kids. Lord, we pray for their safety, Lord, and for whatever steps come next, be that returning to the United States or wherever you would lead them, Lord. We just want to pray for his family, Lord, as they, they grieve a very sudden passing of this man who was in Iraq to make you known and to serve you, and to share the gospel. And so, Lord, we just continue to pray for your nearness to them in a, a tragic time. Lord, we also want to pray for the family of Ed Hohulin, who passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly. Lord, we want to pray for his wife and daughter, Lord, as they grieve a terrible and tragic loss. And so, Lord, we pray for them as well. Lord, we pray for our time as we continue to study this book of Galatians, that we would be pointed to you. Lord, we pray for all of us that we would know the gospel and that our love for you would be continually growing as we walk and live as your disciples. And Lord, we thank you for the veterans in this church and the veterans throughout our nation who have served, who have sacrificed, who have defended and protected the freedoms that we enjoy and so often take for granted. And so, Lord, we pray for them on this Veterans Day weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. When a 94-year-old Canadian woman died this past February, her obituary was written as an application to get into heaven. It begins by saying, Dear Lord, please accept my application for eternal life. My resume is as follows. Objectives. 
to be honest and compassionate, to treat everyone with respect, to demonstrate integrity in all I do, and to live as independently as possible, as long as possible. She gives a list of references, which includes family members who had preceded her in death. She talks about her life. Towards the end of the obituary, it says, Lord, I hope that you will find that I have met my objectives and deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me to, discuss my further, to further discuss my qualifications. I should say one thing, in fairness, I'm not sure if it was the deceased who had written this or one of her relatives, but I opened with that this morning because that is really the epitome of workspace righteousness. Look at me. Look what I did. Look at how good I am. And thinking that we can be good enough apart from Christ to earn salvation. Even the premise that the standard for us to get into heaven is to achieve our objectives. Whoever it was who wrote that is conveying a belief system which is antithetical to the gospel and looks at God's eternal rewards as something that can be earned and therefore deserved. An almighty God is beholden to no one. In a fallen world, as fallen people, we cannot earn God's grace. We cannot meet that objective on our own. There is one man who never sinned, and he died on a cross, and it is faith in him that gives us the hope of eternal salvation. In today's passage, Paul will point to Abraham and explain why faith has always been the mechanism through which people are made right with the Lord. Abraham matters so much because he was the first one who had believed and to whom that belief was counted as righteousness. Abraham was the patriarch of Judaism. He was the one through whom the Lord had chosen to make his covenantal promises of being a great nation and a people of God. But what this passage will say is that we become part of the people of God not through the law, not even through ethnicity, but because of faith and because of the grace of God, just like Abraham before us. And the main idea we'll focus on in today's passage is that the gospel reveals God's eternal plan for salvation. And we'll look at this passage in three parts. Forgiven by faith, sonship through salvation, and a global gospel. With that, we'll jump into our passage the first point shows us that we are forgiven by faith. Now, as I begin, I'm going to take about 90 seconds and very quickly cover last week's passage. And it's important to do because the train of thought from last week runs right into this week's passage. If you look at verse 6, it begins with the words, just as. It's transitional from where we were to where we're going. So where we were last week, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul points to the fact that the gospel of grace had been preached to the Galatians. In verse 2, Paul will point to how the people had received that message by faith, not by works. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's a rhetorical question. It's through faith that we receive the Spirit. We can't finish what the Spirit started and we can't save ourselves. Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's another rhetorical question. The gospel is by faith 
and the Spirit is received by one who has faith in the gospel. Moving to verse 5, Paul will point to the Lord, Lord working through faith, not through the law. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So Paul keeps beating this drum. It's not by the law. It's not by the law. It's not by the law. Which leads us into our passage today, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Because we have the benefit of 2,000 years of church history, and we have the New Testament, which repeatedly quotes this verse, I think it's easy for us to take this idea for granted because it's so foundational to our theology. Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. Now, in Genesis 12, the Lord had made his first covenant promises to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. A couple of verses later, the text tells us that Abraham was 75 years old at the time. His wife was 10 years younger, 65 years old. He has this promise of being a great nation, but they've never had any kids, and Sarah is well beyond normal childbearing age. All Abraham has are these promises, but it's something that has not yet been realized. In Genesis 15, he laments the fact that he does not have an heir. Standing outside, Abraham looks up to the sky and sees the stars, and the Lord promises that he will have offspring. Genesis 15, 5. Look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. That's a pretty incredible promise to be given. How does Abraham respond? It's the same verse Paul picks up here, 15, 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul quotes that here in Galatians 3, and in the book of Romans, the author of Hebrews refers back to this event, as does James in his book. Again, it's right from the text of Genesis. But in the traditional Jewish understanding of Abraham, he's actually not primarily associated with justification by faith, the way Protestants in particular think of Abraham. He's associated certainly with being the patriarch of Israel. He's associated with the covenant and circumcision and hospitality and the promised son, Isaac. And yes, his faith is important, but his faith being credited to him as righteousness was something that really had kind of gotten underplayed over several centuries. It was kind of hiding in plain sight. In the centuries leading up to Christ coming into the world, there had been various non-biblical writings and traditions about Abraham. He was celebrated for his obedience and faithfulness in spite of enduring great trials. And there's a heavy emphasis on his worthiness because of his moral activity. And those traditions colored how Abraham became viewed. And again, I point that out because it's easy for us 
to just think of Abraham in justification by faith. And we should. It's important. But my point is that it wasn't the thing most commonly associated with him when Paul was writing the book of Galatians. Art, culture, tradition, worldview, all influence how we perceive things in the Bible. And we're not immune to that either. For instance, we know Jesus wasn't white. I don't think Renaissance artists put a whole lot of thought into that in their artistic depictions of Jesus where he oftentimes looks basically like he's somebody living in medieval Europe. But those images endure today and they influence how we imagine different biblical scenes and events. Different stories of the Old Testament that in particular get taught to young kids. The garden and the serpent, Noah's ark, Jonah and the whale. If we're not careful, I think those stories can become almost cartoonish to us. I think of the TV series, The Chosen. It's been very popular. I've seen a few episodes. I think there's parts of it that are interesting, but it is important for Christians to also be careful when watching something like that and to understand that it isn't the Bible and it's not a theology book. And you might think, well, yeah, obviously. But those things influence us. They influence how we view scripture, they influence how we prioritize certain ideas and images. It can influence how you read the Bible. Who's seen a movie or a cartoon or some type of depiction before where somebody's weighing a moral decision and they have two angels, one on their left shoulder, one on their right? It's actually an Islamic idea, not a biblical idea. You had interpretations about things with Abraham that had a lot of truth to them, but in the process, Many lost sight of his faith being credited to him as righteousness. But that will be the thing to which Paul points as he's quoting directly from Genesis 15. People pointed to the great things Abraham had done. And again, those are significant. But what also matters is the fact that Abraham had endured so many of his trials and experienced so many of his triumphs after he was already declared righteous by God on the basis of his belief. It was not because of anything he had done and that salvation had been distorted by people who had tried to add law to gospel. And so Paul is taking things back even before the giving of the law to show that first Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. He's not made righteous because he's good. He's made right with God because he trusts in the promises of God. And sadly, many misunderstand and misinterpret this story. And people still do. In the same way that people missed the fundamental message of Abraham's life, many churches misinterpret and misunderstand the gospel and make it into something that it's not. We struggle with the idea of grace. The Catholic Church ties being Catholic, participation in the sacraments, and our morality into salvation. There are, teachers, there are churches who teach that baptism in itself causes regeneration regardless of if a person actually has faith. There are certainly churches who teach works-based righteousness, that so you have to do certain things to be saved. But what does the Bible say? 
in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was not righteous because he was a really great guy. He was righteous because he had a really great God. Back to the text. Abraham believed God. The text doesn't say Abraham believed in God. He believed God. He believed in the word of God. He believed in the promises of God. He believed that there was life in God. We come to our second point. Sonship through salvation. Verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Again, this is something else that might be easy for us to take as a given. But just like the last verse, this is really pretty profound. One of the important theological ideas in the Bible is this theme of the people of God. God chose Abraham to be the father of this people. But what the text is saying is that faith in the gospel is what makes you a true son of Abraham. Pure lineage and genealogy are not your salvation. In the gospels, we see John the Baptist rail against this thinking. In Matthew chapter 3, he's speaking to a group of religious teachers. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. People had wanted to rely on their lineage as the basis of their acceptability before God. And a person faithlessly going through life and thinking that they have assurance based on their family is blasphemous. God can achieve his purposes through any means that he chooses. In Romans chapter 9, Paul says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because there is offspring. I gave some examples earlier of different beliefs that different churches have. I've had conversations with people who are not religious, who care nothing for the things of God, who go through life just as pagan as the rest of society, but look to the fact that they got baptized or the fact that they were confirmed and think that they're good with God even though they're faithlessly walking through life. It's the same heart problem. Faith. It is faith that makes you part of the people of God. And more importantly, it is faith which makes you sons of God. And I'm saying sons because that's the biblical language and theme that gets used. But obviously this applies both to men and women. That we are invited into the family of God as God's children and as Abraham's spiritual descendants. I talked a little bit in our first part about the life of Abraham. I talked about how he and his wife Sarah had been elderly and never had a child. But God promised those innumerable offspring to Abraham. And a significant theme in the life of Abraham is the promised son. On Sunday nights in our Bible study, we've been going through the book of Genesis, and we're actually right now in the part of Genesis that's covering the life of Abraham. 
And we've spent several weeks, really a couple months, looking at these passages in anticipation of a son, waiting and waiting and waiting. Abraham waited 30 years. And in Genesis 21, his promised son Isaac is finally born. And if you didn't know the story, what happens next would be unthinkable. But in Genesis 22, the Lord asks Abraham to sacrifice this promised son. After all these years of waiting, the Lord puts Abraham's faith to the test. Keep in mind that Abraham had already believed, and it had already been counted to him as righteousness. He doesn't earn God there, although he does prove his faithfulness in God. He shows his trust and belief in God. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 12. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now there is so much richness to the story of Abraham. And again, I realize to our sensibilities, it's unthinkable. Keep in mind that the Lord was never going to have him actually go through with it. But the Lord does use this man whom he called and whom he had saved for a truly special purpose in pointing forward to the gospel itself. Verses 13 and 14. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Instead of needing the sacrifice Isaac, the Lord provides the sacrifice. And this points forward to the true sacrifice that was made on the cross. The Lord had asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, but ultimately intervened. But nothing would stop the sacrifice of God's son, Jesus Christ the Lord. This is the true sacrifice that would be made for humanity. And it is ultimately based on faith in the Son of God, that we can be spiritual sons and spiritual daughters of the first one who had believed in God and to whom that faith was counted as righteousness. And in Christ, we also see Jesus as the true descendant of Abraham. The gospel reveals God's eternal plan for salvation. We come to our third point, a global gospel. Verses 8 and 9. And the scripture, <clears throat> foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul again will quote from Genesis, this time Genesis 22:18, in looking at the blessing to the nations through to the descendants of Abraham. Certainly, the ultimate descendant of Abraham, just like I said a moment ago, the ultimate blessing to the nations is through Jesus and the gospel. 
That's another thing I think is easy for us to take for granted. What this verse is saying is that way back in the Old Testament, going all the way to the time of Abraham, the scriptures were pointing forward to this worldwide gospel that would be for people of every tribe and tongue and nation, not just to ethnic Israel. Before the time of Christ, the promise was widely understood as more referring to a positive impact on the world by the people of God. And that's true as well, but the greater meaning of the blessing is that the gospel is for the whole world, for all who believe. It's not about ethnicity, it's about faith, because it is faith that makes us children of Abraham, and it is by faith that we are declared righteous. Even in the Old Testament, there are glimpses of this. Rahab was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. We see their faith. When the Israelites were planning to depart from Egypt, Exodus 12.38 talks about a mixed multitude, which refers to Egyptians, non-Israelites, having joined with the Israelites. In the Gospels, we see a Roman centurion and a Canaanite woman drawn to Jesus, again, pointing to the worldwide hope of the gospel. And so again, there are glimpses, but the primary focus in the Old Testament is on Israel and the forefathers who God made his promise to and through whom Jesus came into the world. But in the New Testament, we see the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And praise God for that. As I've pointed out before, either everyone or almost everyone in this room is not ethnically Jewish. And so praise God that the gospel is for the whole world. But that should also be a reminder of the importance of sharing the gospel. I read a book earlier this fall called Gospel Witness Through the Ages by David Gustafson. By the way, he's who I interviewed this month on my podcast. We talk about this book. It's on the history of evangelism. And it's such an interesting book. It's amazing to consider all of the work that has been done throughout the centuries in spreading the gospel from an unfriendly and hostile Roman Empire. The gospel went forth into Asia and Europe, often into dangerous places, into Africa, centuries of missionary efforts in Europe, and then many more centuries of evangelism and missions efforts of bringing the gospel to the Americas, the Christian faith certainly being instrumental to the founding of our own nation. If you're here today and you're a Christian, it's because of a long chain of one person sharing the gospel with another who shared it with another who shared it with someone else. People sharing the message across cultures, across generations, until it was told to someone who told it to someone who shared it with you. And we're called upon to continue that work. If you believe in the gospel, either it came through reading the Bible, or really the more common way came through someone sharing it with you. Maybe a friend or a relative, maybe a pastor, maybe someone on the radio or television. But it's because you heard the message of salvation and believed. You believe because someone told you. And we are called to continue to share that good news with others. I've said this before, but it's true. That we talk about what we love. We love beautiful weather. 
We talk about it. We talk about sports. We talk about a great restaurant. We talk about our families, our kids, our grandkids. No one has to coerce you or twist your arm to talk about those things. We talk about what we love. But if you don't talk much about Jesus, my point isn't to accuse you of not loving Jesus, but to ask you a question. Why don't you? And again, I'm not trying to cause guilt or shame. Really, my point is for us to reflect. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, that you were dead in sin and have been given eternal life through him, and you know that one of the things that he's given for his church to do is the Great Commission, to make him known, to share the gospel, and you don't talk about him, at least you don't talk about him in a meaningful way, why do you think that is? And if you're taking notes, I would jot that question down. Why is personal evangelism difficult for you? And different people, undoubtedly, would have different reasons. But to really do some soul searching, because we naturally talk about what we love. But the thing that's most important, so often, is so hard for us to discuss. The gospel reveals God's eternal plan for salvation. There has always been one gospel. People have always been saved by grace through faith. In the Old Testament, they had a personal God and his promise of an ultimate future redemption. That is what Jesus did on the cross. For us, we look back to what Jesus has done for us, and we look forward to the future hope as people who are in Christ and the children of Abraham. The text says, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We share the blessings of Abraham because we share in the same faith that Abraham had. And we worship the same God Abraham worshipped. And we have the same hope in which Abraham hoped. The most striking thing about Abraham in his command to sacrifice Isaac is what he says right before he goes up to the mountain. Genesis 22, verses 4 and 5. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You see that? He says, they'll come back. We don't know Abraham's exact thoughts, but he knew that the Lord was able to bring life from death. He had given life to a dead womb by giving Abraham and Sarah the blessing of a son. And in a situation that seemed hopeless, Abraham knew that the Lord who had made the covenant promise with him was again able to bring life. The author of Hebrews again elaborates on this. Hebrews 11 by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. The gospel reveals God's eternal plan for salvation. We enjoy the blessings that God gave to Abraham. Most importantly, 
We are declared righteous because of faith. That's the most significant blessing, but that's not the only blessing God gave to Abraham. And there are other blessings that apply to our lives. Because of faith, we are sons of Abraham, which means that we share in the inheritance of what God had promised to Abraham. In Genesis 12, I quoted this in the beginning, the Lord had promised Abraham that he would be a great nation. We have the blessing of being part of that great nation, the people of God. God had promised Abraham land. The land becomes one of the dominant storylines of the Old Testament. We have the promise of land too, a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, eternally spent in the presence of the Lord. Abraham was told that he would both be blessed and be a blessing. In over 2,000 years, the church has been transformative in its effect on the world. The gospel message has transformed Christians who have transformed others as they've continued to share the message. Lives have been changed. Families have been changed. Entire societies have been changed because of the gospel. I'll close with this. All of us have one thing that we value above all other things. The Bible calls us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And it's easy to say that we do, but in our heart of hearts, is that truly the thing to you that is most precious? For Abraham, it was. The idols we make and worship, for some it's pleasure and enjoyment, for others it's money and success. We can make an idol of a spouse. We can make an idol of our children. All those things are good. But all of those things make terrible gods. But for many, in your heart of hearts, one of those things I just listed is the thing that you most value. And the thing that you value above all other things is what you will worship. And that will become your God. And so what is that thing for you? Is it the Lord God? Or is it something else? A skeptical person might look at God's call on Abraham to sacrifice Isaac as being wicked and evil. How could God ask such a thing? But in a real, intangible way, he was forcing Abraham to come to terms with what he truly valued. And in our own ways, we must all do that. It's easy to talk the talk of faith. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice the thing most precious out of an even greater devotion to the Lord. While we don't need to go to that extreme, there is a process in life of uprooting the idols of our own hearts, of taking an inventory of what we value, and in our own ways, putting to death the things which compete for the throne of our hearts. Abraham, being willing to sacrifice Isaac, was not the basis for his righteousness before God, but again, it proved his devotion to God. God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son is still shocking. It's appalling to us. It would have been shocking and appalling to the ancient Israelites too. But Abraham had enough faith in God that he was willing to do the unthinkable. He had enough reverence for the word of God that he was willing to do the unreasonable. He had enough love for God that he was willing to do what seemed impossible. When Abraham said that he and Isaac would come back, 
He knew that God is a God of life. He knew that even in a difficult situation, that we have a God in whom we can follow. He knew that even in a confusing situation, that we have a God in whom we can still place our hope. Abraham loved his son. He waited for this son. He had been promised this son. But when God asked him to sacrifice the thing that he most cherished and the thing that he had hoped for, Abraham loved God even more. And in that, we see the Old Testament's most powerful picture of what true love and devotion to God looks like. Our devotion doesn't save us, but it does lead to a greater fulfillment and joy in God as we walk with Him and know that He is the greatest, that He is enough, and uproot the idols of our hearts. What's the thing that if God asked you to sacrifice would be most difficult? And again, different people will have different answers. And it might not even be an area of sin. The point isn't even necessarily that it's something that you need to give up, but something that you need to put in its proper place because our priorities are out of whack and because something else is on the throne of your heart above the Lord. What is that thing? Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and again, we thank you for your holy word, and that we are pointed to you, that we are pointed to truth. Lord, may we walk as people who worship and love you above all else. Because when we do that, Lord, we are able to love others better. We are able to serve others more faithfully. We are able to walk in greater humility and joy. So may we be a church of people who worship you in your proper place as the King of Kings. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.